Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. We have a mission for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, the mission's okay. going to be impossible. Or will it be? It's we'll guide you through. Mostly impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the 1996, the first of the Tom Cruise Impossibles. That's right. The Impossibles. <laughs> yeah, it was directed by Brian De Palma, who was the director of Carrie, Scarface, The Untouchables, Mission to Mars. Many, oh, okay. Many great and lesser great movies. Cool, cool. Yeah, let's take a listen to the trailer. Simple game. Is he serious? They knew, they knew we were coming. Do you read me? I don't care how he did it. I want to know why he did it. These guys are trained to be ghosts. Let's not waste time chasing after him. Let's make him come to us. This whole operation was a decoy. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. Classic, man. Yeah, it's a great movie. One of the writers on this movie is this guy, David Kep, uh -huh. who has credit on so many movies, it is ridiculous. He has, like, writing credit, at least, on Jurassic Park, Snake Eyes, Stir of Echoes, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, Panic Room, Indiana Jones 4, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, okay, Angels okay, and okay. Demons that knew the movie. I'm saying he works. Right. <laughs> he works a lot. <laughs> like how many titles is he gonna list <laughs> exactly. he's a working stiff yeah anyway well but this is one of those classic movies that reimagines the the original mission impossible series from the 60s right the original series ran from 1966 to 1973 and then was revived in 1988 for two seasons okay and then tom cruise started a new production company and decided that his first movie that he wanted to produce was mission impossible oh Oh, that's right. He was one of the producers on this. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I found an interesting tidbit. While filming the famous scene where Tom Cruise drops down, apparently Cruise's head kept hitting the ground <laughs> until he finally got the idea to put coins in his shoes for balance. Oh. Could you imagine just, like, <laughs> slamming your forehead into the ground every time oh you film? Oh, God. Yeah, just a couple of coins. Well, you know, he's like a tiny little pint-sized dude, so just a couple of nickels and it got it all <laughs> squared away. One of the coolest things about this movie is all the like crazy spy gizmos that they mm -hmm. use, right? They have like infrared glasses and body heat sensors and fingerprint scanners and stuff. So I was just looking into some real life spy gizmos. Are you mm -hmm. ready? I'm ready. Okay. Mission Impossible takes place during the Cold War, we're assuming. It's like 60s. So that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. So for example, there's this guy, Georgi Markov, who is this communist in Bulgaria during... I say Cold War time because I'm like, I don't need to do exact days sometimes. Somewhere from the 60s sometimes. to the 80s. <laughs> right. Post-World War II, essentially, leading up to crazy, icy Cold War tensions. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this guy, Georgi Markov, he's a communist in Bulgaria, and his writing was winning all sorts of these awards and, you know, stirring anti-communist movements all across Europe. So one day, Markov was walking to his car in London, and then he felt this, like, sharp pain in his leg, and he turned around and saw the, this guy that was just fumbling with an umbrella before running away. Oh. And it was discovered that it was this umbrella dart gun. And the Ooh. next day, he became deathly ill and died, and nobody has actually been convicted of any kind of crime since, and it was suspected that... The, the penguin? It was the penguin. It was, the, it was suspected to right. be the penguin. <laughs> that nobody came out. Nobody, he wasn't charged or anything. But, like, yeah. it's one of those court of public opinion things. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so apparently what it was is, like, the projectile itself was modified from a jeweler's bearing that's normally used in watchmaking. So that bullet was relatively harmless to the body. It was sort of like a BB. Mm -hmm. But the pellet was coated with a special wax that would melt at body temperature. And inside was this poison called ricin, Ooh. which made a comeback, I guess, during Breaking Bad, right? Wasn't <laughs> well, that? Well, yeah, I remember because he puts ricin on rice and beans, and oh, he right. calls it ricin beans. Super, super clubs. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's this like, ricin was this like top secret concoction poison thing that was made after years of research in Soviet chemical warfare labs. So they started soaking oh. these, you know, watchmakers, pallbearings with that and shooting people with umbrellas. <laughs> 
Do you know anything about the shooting mechanism in the umbrella? Well, I guess you said it was like a BB, so it it's must like have been a dart like gun. Air, okay. So they basically like, like compressed air. Yeah, is that how dart guns work? I think so. Yeah, so they. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dart guns have been used for a long time, even from back in the day when right. they're just like. <laughs> they're just like <laughs> yeah, with the like like a spitball. <laughs> yeah, so they basically were able to just like remanufacture a dart gun into the shape of an umbrella, and then. Poison wow. some shit. That's... So Scotland Yard was like so unfamiliar with ricin at mm-hmm. the time that they had to start, they had to test it on a pig to see like actually how it killed people. Wow. Yeah. The wax worked so covertly that it wasn't actually discovered until investigators found traces on a similar pellet pulled from the body of Bulgarian exile Vladimir Kostov, who suffered but did not die. Oh. So the first time, that's why I was saying like nobody was tried. Nobody even like, they were just like, God, this guy got shot God. and then died yeah yeah and then later this guy was alive they were able to analyze it and be like oh man so yeah yeah well a wax that the temperature of the human body is that what you said it melts at they coated it in wax that melted at the temperature of a human body so smart so smart like smart killing (laughs) well then in the vietnam war (laughs) this is you'll we'll appreciate this with based on what we talk about on this show Mm -hmm. it was common for u.s soldiers to litter the vietnamese countryside with mounds of fake tiger shit really that's right because they had seismometers tucked inside the turds to track enemy troop movements. Oh, mm-hmm. that's smart. Because nobody's going around being like, let me just dig through this dig tiger through poop. Dig through the shit. Yeah. That's so really they also smart. They simulated either dog poop or tiger poop, I guess, that was hollowed out to hide messages and information in. But mm. of course, the downside of that is somebody has to like find some poop. Right. Know that it looks fake enough. Touch right. it investigate yeah open it up yeah like you're investigating various poops that are poops you're like so it must be this and, and then you're like yeah. nope just regular well, tiger poop my uncle used to have one of those hide a key things and it was in yeah. a fake dog poop totally. outside of his like well yeah i mean we use that all the time now whether it's rocks i mean it doesn't have to be dog shit right. but i guess certainly at well, the time he that thought was, he was real funny yeah <laughs> it's a real joke you're gonna show up you're going to look for a dog poop. Pick it up. Right. Be his house, house yeah, guest. You're like, exactly. all right. <laughs> Getting a little bit more classy, we mm. have a scientist, Hal Classier Lipsett. Classier than poop? That's right. Yeah. A little bit more classy. Got it. Scientist Hal Lipsett specialized in inserting audio devices into crazy places that were concealed as something else. But like, you, you said... Stop. You said... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> anyway, so he would like he specialized in inserting audio devices into these like crazy places, but they always were supposed to look more mundane or whatever. Mm-hmm. He he actually operated out of this like covert laboratory hidden behind a false storefront. So he was like <laughs> the definition of mad scientist guy. That's like who ha who. His one of his most famous pieces was this martini olive that he was able to bug. So people would be drinking. Of course, it kind of sucks because you couldn't actually use it with alcohol because a short would oh, happen. But still. So it had to be like a fake martini? Yeah. Like water in a martini glass? Yeah, exactly. Because vodka does like look different in a glass yeah. slightly. It's like thicker? It seems thicker. But it anyway, d- yeah. especially if it's been, you know, shaken, well, stirred, all of yeah. If you add some vermouth to it. <laughs> but what was interesting is so like this guy, Lipset, he needed to demonstrate to a Senate constitutional rights subcommittee how easy it was to whip up these devices. And he presented them with dozens of these different bugs that he'd made that he'd custom built for the testimony. And the piece de resistance of this presentation was that he'd actually sneakily placed bugs into the committee's own microphones before the hearings and played the proceedings back to them. And what his idea was was to prove to them that wiretapping technology should actually be employed more by the private citizens since the government's already using it so much and maybe Mm. it's more beneficial or useful to have just people on the ground. But the plan obviously backfired because the subcommittee was so outraged about being recorded that they started cracking down on private use. (laughs) So, yeah, and then even though when he was trying to move on to make things that were more efficient or more useful, people were still like, no, no, we love the martini thing. (laughs) Do the martini olive. That's clever. I mean, everybody loves the martini olive. I love things that look like other things yeah. you know it's like you've got your what is it we do that a lot with with weed smoking devices or oh like weed. the little pipes that look like coke cans or, or exactly not, or like yeah yeah that's right i mean sometimes people are taking a coke can and turning it into a pipe Correct. But no but these are, like, are actually and like you they hide sell shit them. inside yeah. and mm-hmm. all of that stuff mm-hmm. i love mm-hmm. that stuff yeah. so clever hidden compartments yeah i mean and along the same front there's the idea of making guns into mm-hmm. things that don't look like guns like 
lipstick guns, like mm-hmm. tiny little pistol that you just turn the lipstick up and it shoots. But of course, <laughs> it's like, is that how you turn on, put on lipstick? Like that seems pretty you overt to be like, let me just put this on. I'm pointing it at you and twisting it this way. I would think that it's more about getting it through a security checkpoint right. than, and then using it as a gun than being like, I'm just putting this on my lips <laughs> right. and boom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got you. Right. Uh, well, because the same idea with smoking pipe guns where it's like, it's fired by placing the barrel in your mouth and then holding a lighter to the trigger, which is inside yeah, the barrel. I, great idea. Right, exactly. Even in the article I read, it was like, how many pretentious collegiate arguments ended in needless accidental <laughs> bloodshed because of it? Being like, and that's what I have to say to that. No, you won't. I'm going to smoke that. And it was, oh, it was a real gun. Yeah. It was a just terribly <laughs> polite way to die. That is a <laughs> huge mistake. Yeah. It's crazy to think, though, that those kind of small not gun guns are still in use today. They were initially used by the KGB, but they're sometimes used by the CIA. I guess like gangs in Britain have taken to using small pistols concealed in pens. Like pen guns, that's the biggest thing. So it's become such a problem that Scotland Yard started a collection of their own for use as a reference guide and training police to spot them, their little pen guns. Wow. I didn't know they made guns that small. Yeah, like at the Walmart? Can you go get those guns like at any gun store? I don't know about that, but considering the KGB and the CIA are using it, I'm like, or gangs. I mean, it's got to be something that somebody underground has been like, oh, fashioned this gun at. I don't think it's a Walmart yeah. scenario at this point. I wonder if they you know, the place where you go to get guns. Walmart. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so do the pen guns, they must be one shooters. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. not like... It's not like automatic <laughs> right. riddling someone with bullets from your pen. Like, click, 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 So, yeah, I was looking into some spy stories. We were talking about Sun Tzu Mm -hmm. a little while ago being a forensic entomologist. And Sun Tzu is also known for writing the book The Art of War. Right. And he used this tactic called doomed spies. And he would basically supply spies with false information and then send them to spy on the enemy and arrange for them to be captured. And then during torture, the spy would divulge the information believing it to be correct, but it was wrong. Then the enemy would form a battle plan based on the false information. And once the enemy realized that the spies had lied to them, they would obviously be killed. So I imagine Sun Tzu only did this to people he hated. Wow, that's like some crazy-ass reverse psychology Mm -hmm. shit. So that was like one of the spy techniques that he had like invented that seems very effective. Definitely. Fucked up to do to somebody. Yeah. So he's testing them that they to see whether or not they would spill their guts? No, they're expected to spill their guts. Uh-huh. And then the enemy would make a game plan based on the wrong information that Sun Tzu supplied. Mm. So then Sun Tzu's army is actually like positioned to take out like oh. the new position. The new He basically plants a false plan in the enemy's head. And then okay. the enemy thinks like, okay, so Sun Tzu's troops are all over here, so right. I'm going to position it this way. And then Sun Tzu's like, he's going to think I'm over here, but I'm actually over here. Right, right, right. And in the meantime, I really fucked somebody over to do that. That's fucking crazy. Do you think they still use those kind of tactics today? There must be instances of it. Oh, yeah. But how do you fight a war? Right. I guess it really is kind of boiling it down as though you're playing a fucking football game. You're it's like, totally... <laughs> The, fo- right? the reason football games are so fun and successful it's is because str- it's war. And it's the strategy of war, basically. Yeah, it's war it's without crazy. actual killing. Wow, that's crazy. Well, let's say you did have a soldier that was captured by the enemy and placed into some kind of POW camp. You want to make sure he's well prepared to escape and certainly not just getting out of prison, which is hard enough, but then being able to, you know, find his way around in deep, like, enemy, enemy territory, especially Ooh. a place like Vietnam, which was, like, crazy jungle land. Oh. So they created these compass buttons. It was, like, a functional compass hidden inside a button, which flips open with the reversal of a screw. So the prisoner of war would simply remove both of the buttons and then balance one on top of the other, and the freestanding button would swivel to point north. That's so awesome! Isn't that fucking great? And so they didn't have to, like, make their own compass Correct. If they escaped, they had oh, the compass that's buttons. So smart. Yeah, they glowed in the dark, which seems a little. If you're trying to like they blend in, the dark? yeah, but still, I'm like, how did you do that? 
But yeah, I thought that was really cool because it's really just using the Earth's magnetic force. Yeah, no, no, no. I think you can like make a compass in the wild. I've heard about that. But if you have like it's the like right water, materials, water and like uh, I think you you might still need a piece of metal right. for it to align along the magnetic I, it lines. It was some fucking movie that I saw it in that was yeah. like, well, all we have to do is exposition <laughs> yeah. explain away so that this makes sense, you know. But but then <laughs> like imagining if you've just escaped from a thing, people are chasing you right. and you're like in enemy territory. You don't have like, time to be like, all hey. right, let me test. <laughs> the air yeah like my finger uh, here. yeah so i also read about this guy eli cohen so he was an israeli who infiltrated the syrian government and reached really high level positions mm-hmm. and at one point he went on a tour of the syrian army facilities at this place called golan heights and he pretended to be appalled by the fact that the soldiers stationed there were left in the sun for hours at a time so he ordered trees to be planted at each position to provide the soldiers with the necessary shade and to camouflage positions. Uh-huh. What they actually were were markers for a potential bombing campaign. Oh, wow. And when the Six Days War broke out, Golan Heights was defeated in less than two days. So basically, when they showed up at Golan Heights, there were all these trees, and the trees were the marking positions of where the troops right. were. And so they were able to aim specifically for that. Unfortunately... Cohen was caught transmitting sensitive information back to Israel in his apartment, and he was executed before learning that his plan was successful. Bummer. What time period was that? Now, it was from June 5th to June 10th, 1967. And yeah, pretty much everybody attacked Israel all at once who was surrounding Israel. Oh, okay. Because I was curious. I forget when Israel... Israel became a state... In 48? In 48. Yeah. Okay. That's a, That should be, you know, sailed the ocean blue in 1942, <laughs> became a state in 48. <laughs> But I just love the idea of this guy being like, these soldiers are in the sun. You should put them under targets. Absolutely. Is anybody really going to question your motives if you're like, gosh, these soldiers are just really looking out for their benefit as opposed to something that's, I guess, more obvious. Although in retrospect, this seems pretty obvious. Right, it (laughs) does. It's really like, let's put these red flags over here, guys, next to the trees. (laughs) Yeah. So I read this other story about this woman named Sarah Edmonds. This is during the Civil War. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was a northern woman who successfully infiltrated the Confederate Army. First of all, she had to disguise herself as a man to even be admitted into the Union Army. Right. So she disguised herself she as a man. Put a sock in her pants. She put a sock right, you know, she's real padded. It's the only thing you have to do. <laughs> she disguised as a man named Franklin Flint Thompson mm-hmm. to serve as a male field nurse in the Union Army during the first and second battles of Bull Run. Mm. When a Union spy was killed, she volunteered to avenge her friend's death and become a spy. She would travel into the enemy territory, gather information, and she tried a lot of different disguises during this. One of the best disguises she had was using silver nitrate to put herself in blackface, wearing a black wig, and walking into the Confederacy disguised as a black man named Cuff. Ugh, there's a lot going on there. Silver nitrate? I know. It's like, I was, I was like, blackface, what, is this the only time that blackface is acceptable right now? But then the silver nitrate and the, yeah, that's crazy. So was she found out? Well, no. So she would infiltrate Southern armies and get tactical information back to the North. I don't know how she would then get out of being a slave because right. I, I got to think, like, I don't know if she went into like a washroom, like washed off the silver nitrate. Right. Was like, was, actually, yeah. And then left. Like, I, but she managed to do this on a few different missions. That is crazy. And... Other disguises she had included posing as an Irish peddler, selling apples and soap to soldiers. She also posed as a black laundress and stole sensitive materials from officers' jackets. Later on, she got malaria, but she couldn't seek treatment from the army because they discovered that she was a woman. Oh, God. So she deserted and wound up getting treated as a civilian woman. And then she wrote a memoir later on called The Female Spy of the Union Army, which was like a huge success in the late 1800s. Good for her, man. She was just not playing by anybody's rules. This Sarah Edmonds is like one of the most amazing badasses. Yeah. I just find it amazing. Like she did multiple missions to the South, mm-hmm. then came back to the North and got malaria, but had to desert in order to get treated. Well, like she knew that she wouldn't be treated because she was female or mm. whatever. I think about all these stories of, of women like dressing as men Mulan. and being passed up. Yeah, she's the only one that I know. <laughs> Victor Victoria, I mean. Yeah, well, just this idea that there there was a time where even something like fighting in a war, mm-hmm. you had to pretend to be the different gender because, mm-hmm. you know, women weren't allowed to protect our country or avenge their friends or whatever. I mean, putting on blackface and potentially risking 
being enslaved for the rest of your life. I know. Because what would happen? You would just eventually be like, actually, guys. Here's the truth. I'm a spy from the north. I'm a woman and I'm white. Right. Like. I know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Another story that I read about was this story of this lost nuke sniffer. So in 1965, the United States wanted to spy on possible nuclear tests by the Chinese. So they climbed a Himalayan mountain intending to install a device called a SNAP unit. Whoa. That stands for Systems for Nuclear Auxiliary Power, near the summit. Oh, snap. When the CIA mountaineering team neared the summit, there was a terrible storm, and they had issues with their oxygen supply, and so they were forced to hide and abandon the machine until the next spring. When they came back six months later, they couldn't find it anywhere. Searches of radiation on the mountain found nothing, and they just think a huge avalanche buried it somewhere. Wow! So it could still be out it's there. It's totally still out there, oh. or somebody stole it. From right. The, but like from the How, summit. Really? Yeah. Like no. So <laughs> with no trace. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, like yeah, we never heard about it again. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll dig that up. Mm-hmm. Some other avalanche will will well, shoot it off. Well, if. Yeah, the way things are going, shit will melt, things will be exposed, <laughs> right, yeah. permafrost and methane burps, and, and then, then that thing. And then this, <laughs> yeah, and this will be like, hey, there's lots of nuclear activity going on. <laughs> okay, so another thing. In 1977, a fire erupted on the eighth floor of the American Embassy Building in Moscow. Whoa. And, of course, KGB officers dressed as firefighters went in and just took everything. Of course. And it's in Mission Impossible, they do pose as firefighters mm-hmm. and do a fake fire in order to get into the CIA building. There's a lot of costume for mm. firefighters. <laughs> you can of... really like block your face. <laughs> yeah, you it's can, a yeah. perfect disguise. Sandra Bullock does that in the net. That's right. Ugh. Man. <laughs> Firefighters. She learned that from the KGB. (laughs) So when we wound up building a new embassy in the early 80s, the building's columns, which had been built by Soviet workers, were found to be riddled with listening devices. Of course. Like, nothing sensitive could be talked about in the building until 1994, when American workers were allowed to partially dismantle and rebuild the embassy with four totally new upper floors. So the new building finally opened in 2000, and only the top four floors are actually trusted to be safe to have a real conversation. But they... they, Who would have hired the Russians to build the embassy? Well... All of that embassy talk is a delightful segue into this crazy dive that I went into. Okay. There was a gentleman by the name of Lev Sergeyevich Termin, better known in the Western world as Leon Theremin. Does that ring a little bell-ski in your brain? It rings a... Okay. For those of you who don't know why we're making crazy noises, we've talked before on this show about the theremin, which is this crazy gizmo it's a musical device from the late 20s mm-hmm. where you wave your hands over two antennae and they make like weird pitch noises correct so he is also the creator of one of the most successful listening devices ever used against the american government whoa mm, oh, i will tell you more i know that's what you want <laughs> i do want that <laughs> okay so this guy theremin he was a scientist by training and as a young student he was an aspiring physicist he actually entered military engineering school for radio operations during world war one and then after the war, he worked on experiments including a device to measure the dielectric constant of gases, which is the ability of a substance to store electrical energy, as well as hypnosis. He even did work in Ivan Pavlov's lab. Did you know that? I.e. Pa- Pavlov's dog dogs? Yeah. yeah, I'm like, Ooh. I don't know much about him, but I know about his dogs. Yeah. He had a bell, too. Yeah, That's, I right. know that. Bell, of course. Well, in 1920, Theremin noticed that an audio oscillator, which is what produces radio frequency, changed frequency when he moved his hand near the circuit. So that's how the theremin was born. We've talked about the theremin uses the player's hand Mm. proximity to a pair of antenna to generate electronic sound. So he starts touring around with it in the 1920s. And in 1928, he brought the theremin to the United States. He actually set up a lab in New York and worked with RCA to produce more theremins. Mm. Didn't know that. I was like, ooh, Origins of RCA, okay. He faced a bunch of this, like, judgy nonsense, but, like, he married a black woman, and he was, you know, he was just ostracized and whatnot. He eventually went back to Russia in 1938, and when he got there in Leningrad, Theremin was imprisoned, suspected of crimes against the state, and then was forced to work in a laboratory for the State Department. And it was during this time, as a prisoner, that Theremin designed his famous listening device. Oh, shit. Dude, I know. Oh, my. But Okay, first, before we get into that, could you imagine being like, well, I guess I'm not wanted here. I'm... 
I'll go oh. home to Mother Russia. And, and then you like, get there and they're like, crimes against the state. Like, get in jail and work on shit for us. Yeah, exactly. Because what's the alternative? They fucking exile you or kill you or whatever, right? Right, right. Oh, so let's jump to August 4th, 1945. The European portion of World War II was over and the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima was only two days away. This group of 10 to 15-year-old boys from the Young Pioneer Organization of the Soviet Union arrived at the U.S. Embassy in Russia, carrying a hand-carved Great Seal of the United States of America. They presented the seal to W. Avril Harriman, who's the U.S. Ambassador to the Soviet Union, and the seal was given as a gesture of friendship between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Mm. And so he then hung the plaque in the study of his residence, Spaso House. Unbeknownst to him, though, the seal contained Theremin's sophisticated listening device. This device later became known as The Thing, Ooh. Ooh. This is before the thing. Correct. Mm. But it makes me wonder too. I'm like, what if there's some weird undertones the there? Like not trusting, space. blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so it was known as the thing, and it wasn't actually even discovered until 1952, which was about seven years later. Holy shit. I know. So so for seven years that's just hanging so there, and they're like, look at this beautiful thing carved out of wood. I mean, because that's this what it looks like. It's like a wooden carved gift yeah. from the enemy. And given to us by children. Of course, they couldn't mean any harm. Yeah. So the way that. I I assume, just thinking about, like, gifts from other nations, like, I assume we've checked the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> right, this whole time. Yeah. The France has like, just been like, these fucking these, clowns. <laughs> we know everybody who's coming right. in through Ellis Island. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wait, just they're not like using twist. it anymore? <laughs> yeah, oh, shit. Anyway, so the way that it was even discovered is that British broadcasters started reporting hearing American voices on their radios in the vicinity of the American embassy, but Americans weren't transmitting at the time, so it was like... Oh. Obviously, there's a bug <laughs> happening here. Yeah. So there were all of these sweeps done at the embassy, but all of them turned up nothing. So then this guy, Joseph Bezgian, I'm not sure how to say his name. He was from the Department of State Security team. He had this hunch. So he ends up staying at the embassy, disguising himself as a, as a guest. Mm-hmm. And he like gets all of his equipment shipped to him separately. And then he just does like a sweep of the building. So he was able to hear the bug's audio and quickly isolated the source inside the eagle head. Oh, man. So once he closely inspected it, he found that there was this carving that had been hollowed out and a strange device had been placed behind the eagle's beak. Oh my God. What's even more fucking crazy about this whole thing is that there were no batteries or wires that were evident. The device was not powered through the nail which had been hanging the seal. So then he ends up like sending it off to, you know, to Washington to be analyzed because uh. there's like, this doesn't work like any of the things that we know to yeah, work. Like- and the reason why it was able to work is because it's called a passive resonant cavity device, which contains no batteries, no resistors, no tubes, no traditional capacitors of any kind, no standard internal components. It consisted only of an antenna and a small cylinder. Now, on one side, the cylinder was solid. The other side consisted of a very thin diaphragm, which was obviously some sort of microphone. Uh So passive resonant cavities had been explored before, both in the U.S. and abroad, but this was the first time that anything like this had been used for kind of like spy-like activities. So the Soviets would like sit outside, whether in a van or some remote location, Mm -hmm. and they would just like aim a radio transmitter at the seal, and then the bug inside would receive the signal and transmit voices in a room on a second higher frequency. So they didn't, the like transmitting and receiving were on different frequencies. Okay. The way that this is achieved is by the precisely cut antenna. So the RF carrier transmitted by the Russians would be received at the antenna and travel into the body of the device, which is that resonant cavity. And like sound waves would cause the diaphragm to move, which would vary the capacitance or ability to store charge between the body and the diaphragm forming a condenser microphone. So it's basically, what's fucking cool is this has also been referred to as the, quote, Amish microphone, because it doesn't use any (laughs) normal things. It's just wood and metal that's designed in such a way that sound waves change the dimension of the interior space, which an ultra-high frequency signal could pick up on. Okay. So they're sending in waves from outside, and that's picking up the signal. And it's being like, ooh-ee-ooh, and picking up the signal. Well, that's funny, because like I also read this whole thing about, in the 60s and early 70s, the U.S. embassy in Russia was being bombarded with microwaves. And the American government knew about this and wasn't telling any of the workers there. Oh, my God. And it... It's unclear how much actual damage this did to people who were in during that time, but there were decades where we were aware that they were just jamming microwave signals into the embassy. And the reason that they think that they were doing it was to jam any potential listening devices that we had inside. Right, 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 right. There wound up kind of being a thing where, like, I think it was Lyndon Johnson was like, you got to stop this. Right. Like, people are maybe being hurt, like... With that massive amount of microwave yeah, being thrown yeah. at you, yeah. And there was even, like, apocryphal stories of people who had worked there being like, yeah, and, like, I never knew why, like, I felt weird. You <laughs> yeah. know, like, all this kind of... all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, so and it's not so like the the great seal bug disappeared for a number of years, and the Russians obviously knew that we had caught them, so they moved on to other espionage mm-hmm. devices. And the seal finally reappeared in 1960 at the United Nations when Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. presented the seal as concrete proof that Russia was spying on the Americans. Uh. So currently, a replica of the seal is on display at the NSA National Cryptologic Museum. Yeah. That's amazing. Final little note about our friend, Mr. Theremin, because he kind of got like the short end of the stick in all of this. Like he's forced to use (laughs) his genius, uh, essentially the same kind of concepts that made the theremin a thing, but for, you know, spy purposes. Mm -hmm. So then afterward, after all of this happened, Leon Theremin, he was released from his camp in 1947. Then in 1964, he became a professor at Moscow University. But unfortunately, he lost his job after an article that was published in the New York Times was read by the assistant director of the conservatory. So the assistant director apparently (laughs) said, quote, electricity is not good for music. Electricity is to be used for electrocution. (laughs) And then threw him and his theremins out. So, (laughs) of course, this is all at the time, like, through the 70s, where the theremin's making a serious comeback. And, and, like, electropop, hello. And electricity is, like, not being used for anything other than killing people? Is that what he's trying to say? I mean, he was basically saying, like, it's not for music. I think he was just being a dick. I I mean, it doesn't have quite the run if it's, like, or heating homes, or (laughs) cooking, or... (laughs) It doesn't have that impact. (laughs) You know, not keeping his old man in check of being, like, who's going to use electricity in music? Who uses electricity? And now, if only he knew, it's like, dude, come uh, to a house Let me party. tell you something about auto-tune. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm happy about that. But then also, so Theremin visited the United States in 1992. So he, he lived whoa. a whole motherfucker. Yeah, and even after all that, even after the fall of the Soviet Union, when he was here, he was still like always looking over his shoulder, all yeah. like stressed out because it's like, hello. You lived your whole life. Yeah. And then mm. he ended up dying in 93. He was 97 years old. 97. Yeah, fucking theremin, man. It's those vibrations. Yeah. Kept good him alive. Vibrations. <laughs> <laughs> we cry ourselves to sleep. So I did some research about crazy vaults that are out there. All right. Because, you know, there's a famous vault scene in this movie. Yeah, they're trying to get in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a lot of security. So Fort Knox is a famous vault. Mm -hmm. And so there's like a solid granite wall perimeter, squadrons of machine gun wielding guards and armed military. And if you get past all of those, they have a 22 ton vault door that has a lock so intricate it takes a 10 person team to unlock it. Whoa. Yeah. Over the top. Yeah. It's like (laughs) Sylvester Stallone's over the top. (laughs) That's right. It's... Yeah, can you imagine, like, who's out sick? We we only got nine people? I mean, I wonder how that is, because I'm thinking, you know, Twin Keys Terminator style, Mm -hmm. but what does that mean? It's like, when I say this, you say that. (laughs) It's a call and response. Hopefully, I mean, by that point, you should... When I say Fort, you say Knox. Fort. Knox. Fort. Knox. (laughs) That's right. That's hopefully how they open it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a whole ceremony that they do. (laughs) They sacrifice somebody. So the New York Federal Reserve Vault is so secure that no one is allowed to enter it and only robots move stuff around inside. But then I, it's like, I don't know who's controlling these robots. And like, it seems like a complicated system. Well, and certainly, as we've talked about before, it's like if something is electric, it can be hacked. You'd think. Yeah. But apparently its security is so trusted that foreign governments use it for gold storage. Wow. So it's like considered to be the most secure location in the world. I suppose it makes sense these kinds of, you know, Mission Impossible slash Ocean's mm-hmm. Eleven things where it's like we have to have a whole crew of sleuthers that right. can just get through. And I guess it's like if you're, let's say conceptually you're building a bunker that's supposed to withstand like a nuclear bomb an earthquake a hurricane and a tsunami right and it's like you're building a bank vault that can withstand everybody being a robber i don't don't know (laughs) it seems like it's overkill for just people it's like you don't have to build something that heavy for like people to not be able but i guess it's like if that person brought a huge bomb yeah or or a drill yeah Mm. that they it's super super secure (laughs) Also worth noting, the place where the Queen's Treasury was held for a long time is now home to the Hard Rock Vault. Ooh, cafe? <laughs> so that's oh, where, yep, hard rock? yep. Okay. That's where, like, Jimi Hendrix is flying V guitar. No way. Some handwritten lyrics from John Lennon, you know, and okay. it used to hold the Queen's money. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Wow, the things we value. I mean, those are valuable things. It's just interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> You yeah. know, some things we would display for people to look at. Right. And then some things were like, these need to be. Well, you got to go to the cafes to see the display. That's right. Ugh. No gotta, one wants to do that. You don't want to fuck with John Lennon's handwriting. 
you don't want to fuck with it, but they also they have like the fucking constitution on display. You know, what oh. I mean, they just put it behind glass. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, the the Louvre exists. Yeah. I don't remember at what point they use a floppy disk in this movie. I want to talk about floppy disks. Yeah, they use it a bunch. <laughs> they use it. Yeah. It's 96, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, I think I actually read that Apple had a lot of like product placement in this movie because they were failing as a company right. at the time. Right. It was a year before Steve Jobs came back to the company and they were like, what if yeah. people liked Mission Impossible? Exactly. Maybe they'll like us too. <laughs> yeah. For those of you out there, you youngsters, the floppy disk drive or FDD was the primary means of adding data to a computer until the CD-ROM drive became popular. Hopefully people still fucking know what a CD-ROM is, right? Yeah. I mean, they're being phased out, but geez louise. It's like a USB stick, but yeah. f- for a floppy it's drive. It's sort of like the cloud, but like physical, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, a floppy disk drive reads and writes data to a small circular piece of metal-coated plastic. It was invented at IBM by Alan Shugart in 1967, and the very first floppy disk drives, they used an 8-inch disk, which then eventually evolved into the five and a quarter inch disc that was used on the first IBM personal computer in August 81. Mm-hmm. So from eight to, to five and a quarter, that's and those, pretty cool. those were still, those were like the actual floppy ones. Yeah, they were. Um, flip flap and Yeah, flop. the thing that they put it in was like bendy. Mm-hmm. Not like super bendy, but it wasn't like the hard cases that you it think about It was all today. floppy. Yeah, it was just super floppy. But to put it in perspective though, the five and a quarter inch disc from the 80s held 360 kilobytes, which is compared to the (laughs) 1.44 megabyte capacity of today's 3.5-inch diskettes. They're called diskettes now because they're smaller and more sleek. So the modern ones are 1.5 megabytes. Yeah, yeah. If you round (laughs) up. It's amazing. You can't fit a song on that. Yeah. (laughs) Can't fit a song on that. Can you you not? I guess you can. No, a song's about three megabytes, at least. Ugh. So at first you're like, this is useless so let's think about how a floppy disk works though it kind of works very similarly to a cassette tape for example both use a thin plastic base material coated with iron oxide the oxide is a ferromagnetic material which means that if you expose it to a magnetic field it is permanently magnetized by the field Mm -hmm. both can record information instantly both can be erased and reused many times and both are very inexpensive and easy to use but the main thing that is a huge disadvantage for audio cassettes is that it's a sequential device, meaning Mm. that it has a beginning and an end. And if you want to get to a song at the middle of it, you have to fast forward or rewind. Remember these days. You're like, I love the song on my mixtape, but (laughs) I can never get it quite right. So what the FDDs did was since they were shaped like discs rather than a long, thin ribbon like you see in cassette tapes, Mm -hmm. the tracks are arranged in concentric circles so that the software can jump from file 1 to file 19 without having to fast-forward through files 2 through 18. Sort of like how a record, like like a record player, finds those those little ridges on there. So the needle can jump around at random. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The computer hardware and the floppy disk drive controllers start the motor in the diskette drive to spin the floppy disk. Didn't Mm -hmm. know that there was like a fucking motor in there. The disk has many concentric tracks, like I said, on each side and each track is divided into smaller segments called sectors, like slices of pie. I like the imagery because I can actually fucking picture it in my <laughs> yeah, little brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the second motor, which is called a stepper motor, rotates a worm gear shift, which is essentially just a screw, mm-hmm. in these like really small increments that match the spacing between the tracks. If you envision like a vice of any kind, that, uh-huh. like twists and screws, thumb screws, you take your pick what you want. And like we said before, the imagery of a record, of being able to like zone in on where exactly you're mm-hmm. trying to go. And it's very precise and moving slowly enough that it can find it. Now, mm-hmm. Obviously, that technology has gotten more advanced. But I just think it's fucking crazy to be able to be like, okay, here's the space that we have. And then there's like an erase coil that ends up like, you know, clearing out the space to make sure that Mm -hmm. there's no overlap, all of these kinds of things. To me, I don't even know how you get to that point, which is why it's crazy (laughs) to be looking so far back and be like, that's old news. Yeah. And yeah. Well, the idea of like a thing that you magnetize and then it like keeps that state. Yeah. I guess like that's a form of information and all you're trying to do with any of these things is like if you can boil it down to binary code which is like an on or an off yeah then you can kind of say anything with with that language right absolutely well and i haven't even scraped the surface of like coding and right. all of that kind of shit well because uh, i think like spinning hard drives which is what everybody's used up until recently like in phones and most modern computers you now have something called a solid state drive but mm-hmm. the spinning hard drives which are much more higher capacity and still in use commonly is literally that it's a disc that spins you know you hear it like whir up oh totally to your point about the magnetization it's sort of like how the technology that's used on the stripe on the back of your credit card okay it's like basically magnetizing minute iron bar magnet particles that are embedded in the diskette surface 
Okay. That's that's how magnets work in this yeah. case. It's crazy. And credit cards have been around since like the fifties. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I don't. And have they always worked like that, or did they I just think magnetic use the strip credit cards oh, have been okay. around like for a long time? That's crazy. That's why we're now going to this chip and pin thing because people are like, this is so old. It's very old. And it's vulnerable, and that's why things like the Target hacks and and credit card hacks that have happened over the last years is mostly because of this old system of magnetic strips. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, what's cool is floppy disks, even though they're, you know, rarely used in the same way that we used to, they're still used in like Sony digital cameras for software Mm -hmm. recovery. Obviously, we think of the most popular high density form is the zip drives. Right. So we still use the technology, but they've become much smaller and much vaster in the kind of space that they can hold. Yeah. yeah. I love floppy disks. (laughs) I kind of wish we still used them, but I also don't. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's about right. So this movie's kind of famous for its mask technology. Currently, you can definitely perfectly scan somebody's face into a computer using like laser technologies and and everything like that. And you can 3D print that face back out, but it's nowhere near as sophisticated as in the movie. Right. So remind me what happens in the movie. Well, in the in this one, he looks like a whole different person, and then he like rips off a whole face, and it's Tom Cruise under there. Of course. And yeah, and in later movies, they use digital effects where it's like literally one actor, and then he like they like superimpose that actor's face on the mask as they rip the mask off and stuff. But what you can do today is print out a mask that's just like your face but it'll be more like a Halloween mask than oh. something that like looks like you are somebody of else. I mean, because how do you, how do you mimic skin? There, that's an incredibly difficult thing. You start doing that with makeup and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Like, well, that's where I started thinking about it. It's like, I mean, a better thing to do would be like Jiminy Glick or the clumps or, Oh yeah. Or like, like prosthetics oh, and stuff. Have you, do you know about the host of the gong show? Mm-mm. Okay. So they brought the gong show back recently and the host is this weird quote-unquote comedian from Scotland has like a weird face and eyes and then you find out it's actually Mike Myers and Crazy Makeup. Oh, wow. And they're like not telling anybody that it's Mike Myers and so you're like, what the fuck is the bit here? But you just, you when you look at him, you're like, something's wrong with this man. Right, very Uncanny Valley-y. Yeah, it's it's pretty good but Mm -hmm. it's also like, okay, prosthetics and makeup, that's gonna be good. But the problem is if your bone structure is different than somebody else and you have to subtract from your face rather than add to it, right. you can't make your face I look know. like somebody else. And we haven't even fucking done face off. Well, they, I think there is facial bone reconstruction mm. surgeries and well, stuff like that, that. There's face face transplants and everything. But mm. I mean, and not to say like and face off really, you know, I, I feel felt very <laughs> unrealistic, guys. You could never replicate someone else's face without the bone structure. Right. right. Well, if you have like an incredibly small bone structure, mm-hmm. you might be able to add like to it oh, yeah. and make it make your face look like somebody else's face pretty accurately. Yeah. But then getting like every muscle movement to look right, right. is incredibly hard. I mean, hard. I guess people that like like Elvis impersonator, people get their faces yeah. done all the time to, you know, to emulate somebody else. Yeah. No. I actually read a story about a guy who lost a big chunk of his face after having cancer removed, uh-huh. and they used 3D imagery and 3D printing to print out a prosthetic section of his face to go on almost like a mask, mm-hmm. and it like filled the hole in his face, and it looks bad, Oof. but <laughs> it's better than a hole. Yeah. <laughs> so this movie has a lot of unrealistic fighting sequences. What would happen if two people got into a fight on top of a train? Uh, we yes. see this a lot. James Bond, True Lies, whatever. There's yep. like, this is all over the place. Wind's whipping in their hair. Yeah, like, could they actually keep balance? Would they fall because of the wind? If one hit another, would they both fall out of the train? All of these kind of questions. So when you actually break it down, the first thing to consider is getting on the roof in the first place is pretty <laughs> difficult. It's very yeah. difficult to get onto the roof of a train, much less a moving train. Because starting in the mid-1960s, the U.S. Federal Railroad Administration decided that all new railroad cars would not have roof walks or full height ladders unless necessary, such as with like tank cars, for example. Okay. And even by 1974, existing older cars were supposed to have them phased out. This was simply so that nobody would be hopping trains. There were a lot of fatalities as a result of this. Make it hard to get up there. Yeah, and without like a maintenance platform or a cherry picker or something like that, which Mm -hmm. are not things you'd be using if it's actually moving. Mm -hmm. They also stopped maintaining telltales, which are just bridge warnings. They were a series of ropes suspended over the tracks to give warning to a person on the roof of the train that the train is approaching a low clearance obstacle, like a tunnel or a bridge. Series of ropes, I know. I mean, you see them now, you see like just actual signage, but back in the day it was just like these But that was for somebody to like get hit in the head by a rope and be like, I should jump. 
Yeah, it would be like, something's coming. Wow. I just got hit with that rope. So let's even or say grab that. Grab onto the rope. Yeah, yeah. Go swing swinging around. away. Sounds like a terrible idea. And then you're just hanging there. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> Gotta wait for the next train. Right. And then I'm really fucked. So then even if you got on the top of the car, moving from car to car is just as unlikely because let's even imagine somebody trying to jump onto a moving train. Most of the time, their arms would be ripped off. Because mm. even if a train isn't moving that fast, it doesn't have to move that fast to rip off basically the equivalent of a wing off a fly. Right. You know? <laughs> like, uh, if you get hit by a car moving, like, 10 miles an hour. Yeah, you get fucking fucked hurts. up. Not to mention the fact that if you grab it the wrong way, then you could easily be mm. thrown under the train, which you're going to be cut in half. So that's a lot of the ways that people that were trying to jump trains got hurt. Either they were killed or they lost limbs or whatever oh, because wow. of this. So the best bet is for the fight to even occur is if you're on the roof before the train even begins to move. <laughs> yeah. Getting good footing is almost impossible. Even if you start on the roof, few railroad roofs are as smooth and nice as those pictured in the movie Mission Impossible or <laughs> Skyfall or whatever. Most have ribs or other protrusions. But the main thing is the low clearance thing. So mm. like frequently there's not enough room between the top of the car and the bottom of the instruction for a person mm. to even lay down flat. Even if you saw it coming, like where would you go? Right. So you could like try your best to stay as flat as possible. But if you're in the middle of a fight, it's like, are you really going to? Yeah. Yeah. Like a <laughs> lot of reasons. Well, Because you got to stand up to throw a punch. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's that always is what seems so audaciously incorrect is the idea that someone could stand up on a moving train. Yeah. And just be like, gonna walk from car to car. Well, like, it's like I stick my hand out the window when I'm going 65 miles an hour on the highway and I can barely hold my hand. Out. Right. You're like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the equilibrium, it's just fucking crazy. So let's even think let's on a smaller scale, like a moving car, for example, like. Even if a car's windows are down, there's little to hold on to when you're on the roof. Bike racks. Yeah, you can hold on, <laughs> but then, you know. <laughs> so are those, those seem a little bit flimsy if they you were do. to, like, put your whole body weight on well, them. I'm thinking about, like, my mom had, like, a Volvo, and it had, like, these railings yeah. that were kind of along the top. Right. That were totally built into the car. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like it's the same thing. Like, if you have the windows down and you can stay low to the the top of the hood and stay flat and hold on, that would mm. be the best bet. But, of course, like, any turning or stopping would fuck you up because yeah. of like centrifugal force yeah any like slight like yeah five degree turn in the thing you yeah go right off the side so i wished that that was more true i was really hoping yeah, that yeah. there would be some cases of like these daredevils man they were able to stay oh. up there but it sounds like that is a recipe for disaster sounds like that's a mission impossible <laughs> <laughs> I You're can. welcome <laughs> yeah. but while i was doing this research it did lead me to one other thing that we kind of see a lot that it's like, how can you do that? Such as when people pull trains or buses or things with their teeth. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. I always thought that that was like some dumbass like optical illusion because I've only ever seen it on TV. I've no, never I think seen there's it like, I mean, the people pull stuff with their dicks. Like, pe- right? there's like weird stuff That's right. Out and there. it's the same concept. So I was, okay. I was trying to keep it a little bit PG. But <laughs> whether it's your teeth or your dick, I you pu- apparently can pull a bus. <laughs> do you want to know why? Do you know why it's possible for why you to pull a bus with your dick? I do want to know why. So assuming the bus is on level ground, the main force that has to be overcome to move the bus is the rolling resistance of the tires. Uh. Now that, of course, depends on two things, both the weight of the bus and the coefficient of rolling resistance. I didn't know what the fuck that was, but I looked into it. Some kind of trigonometry thing? <laughs> yeah, some kind of math. So the tires on any vehicle deform or squish as they move, and it takes force to make them deform. So the less they deform, the less force it takes. For instance, a train wheel has less than one-tenth the resistance of a car tire because a steel wheel doesn't deform Uh, as much as it rolls. Making sure that the pressure in the tires is correct or even a little bit high can minimize that resistance. That's step one. So let's say for this little experiment with a bus that the coefficient is 0.006. That means that the force required to pull the bus is 0.006 multiplied by the weight of the bus, or 50,000 pounds, let's say. So that is 300 pounds. There might be some extra force from brake drag or friction in the driveline, so we'll say it takes about 400 pounds of energy to move the bus. Mm. So it is possible for someone to exert that much energy with their legs. I mean, these deadlifters are fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. And then, so your legs would be doing the work and your teeth is just, or your dick is just holding it. But your (laughs) legs are doing the thing. The problem there now becomes traction. Because just like the coefficient of rolling resistance, there's a coefficient of friction between your shoes and the ground. So it determines how much force you can apply in the horizontal direction before your feet slip. Because you're going to lean. That's the whole idea is you're leaning Mm -hmm. with all of your strength or whatever, and you just don't want to slip over. So like the best coefficient you could hope for is one. You could apply a force equal to your weight in the horizontal direction. Most likely, the coefficient is going to be less than one. So unless you're like over 400 pounds, that doesn't really work. Uh 
So that's why people will anchor these like ladders on the ground. And so then they'll just be pushing against the, the ladder as opposed, you know, and they, it's still the same idea of right. like leaning all the way back, but then you have something you, to push up against. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly once the wheels start turning, then it just kind of keeps then going. Then you can, right? once, yeah, once it moves a little bit, it just moves. Yeah. Your teeth aren't doing the pulling. Your neck muscles aren't really doing the pulling. Most of the weight is in your legs. And if you're super horizontal, like along your spine. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to try to be as parallel with the ground as possible. So as much as you can lean back, the better. But hopefully you don't break your back and your dick. Yeah. But your jaw is fine and your dick's fine. Apparently so. I mean, because if assumedly you have the kind of body awareness to, to like tighten everything up. So uh-huh. it's like the combination of your whole body as opposed to, you know, if you're right. too high, high up, then your neck muscles are absolutely going to take that. Right. Okay. So I don't know where you start if you're like, let me start from this little Passat. A mini. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's cool. So it is possible, but it's not quite as exciting to say that you can lift 400 pounds with your legs as it is to say like right. i pulled this 50,000 pound bus with my dick at one point john voigt gets a tape on a plane the tape self-destructs and he lights a cigarette to mask the smoke from the tape self-destructing oh god i forgot about that and i looked into when did the smoking ban go into effect on flights yeah because this 60s, was in 96 right? oh yeah, yeah the movie came out in 96 right. so okay I also would have thought the 60s. Oh, wait, no. They've smoked on them when we were kids. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Smoking wasn't banned on all domestic and international flights until 2000. Oh, my God. Yeah. They started rolling it out in 1988, banning it on flights shorter than two hours. Then in 1990, they expanded it to six hours or shorter. And then eventually all planes in the year 2000. I mean, it's kind of bizarro that as I was sitting here, I was like, yeah, it must have been in the 60s, you know, back in the Mad Men <laughs> days. whenever. And then it's like, Joya... You grew up at a time where people were smoking in restaurants. In you movies, grew up at a time on, yeah, mm-hmm. like everything stank like smoke. Yeah, it, That's yeah. Funny. Smoking sections started in the eighties, right? Of planes. No, oh, okay. Like, and the United idea of a smoking section is the most fucking stupid thing I've ever heard <laughs> in my know, entire I life. Know. I mean, I get it, but it's like. It's cigarette smoke, dude. Right. It's that not, shit it is It goes not, into the air. <laughs> and even, you know, like being able to handle that in a diner, that's, you know, because uh-huh. there was something delightful in high school about being able to go to the local Denny's and just smoke cigarettes right. and, and drink coffee because you had nothing well, else Well, they put up like, like cubicle walls around it. Right. Like it was like those were keeping all the smoke out. I totally. But I can't imagine smoking on a plane. That's fucking horrifying. I know. It's, so, it's such a closed environment. But pilots were actually allowed to continue to smoke for a while longer after the ban because they were worried about mistakes happening from somebody right. going through with nicotine withdrawal. Yeah, you got to keep it straight, man. Yeah, like Need these, my fix. Exactly. I don't think I took any notes down in terms of lines. Favorite lines. I had, because at the end, John Voigt goes off on this ridiculous thing where he's like, it was inevitable. No more Cold War. No more secrets you keep from everyone but yourself. You wake up one day and the president's running the country without your permission. How dare he? And you're Impassioned. like, wow. Impassioned okay, speech. so that's your, your whole thing is like, I had more power when the Soviets were around. <laughs> exactly. I don't like. Yeah, the, it was an interesting time. I wish I would have done more research into like the original series to see like 1966 interesting fucking time in american history certainly yeah. with, with regards to like spying and then new technologies in general yeah and, and i wonder how the house and americans activities committee yeah how they how, how they mccarthy mccarthy yeah that is it right yeah she's i had like a brain like <laughs> jenny mccarthy uh, it was no. jenny mccarthy jenny mccarthy definitely who actually she was singled out and then <laughs> singled out reference guys baby baby well, that's actually an amazing thing because that's what mccarthy was doing he was singling people out oh god all right. <laughs> All right, that's enough. We've talked a lot, but this was really cool shit, man. Mm-hmm. So we're doing The Mummy next. That's right. It's going to be fun with Brendan Fraser. Such a time. In the meantime, you can rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and ohthatsathing on Facebook and Twitter. And Instagram, and Instagram is a new thing. We're including all of these fun pictures of shit that we found throughout our Pictures, our articles, journeys. cool videos. Yeah. You can interact with me personally, man, at It's a Joy Mia on Twitter. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman on Twitter. We love you guys, sincerely. We deeply love you guys. <laughs> Rate, review, tell your friends, the whole nine. We'll have, see you guys soon. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.